welcome to the first panel of Dum Dum Dies RPG section at Comic-Con Africa 2020 online. The panel that we're doing today is Building RPG Adventures. Morning, everybody. I'm Carl Gray. I got into world building when I was still at school, very much into fantasy books, started writing a lot for myself a little bit, um, and then found role-playing and D&D, so I started building my own worlds. I've been a DM now for many years, and I tend to play in my own homebrew worlds most of the time. Hi, uh, I'm Daniel Hallinan. I first started role-playing with D&D... Fourth edition. Since then, uh, I pretty much took the world building I've been doing since most of my life, really, and started running my own adventures uh, pretty soon after that. Uh, I think the first homebrew campaigns I started running was maybe about six years ago, where I started experimenting with different systems and started bringing the worlds that I'd written to life. I'm John Keevy. Uh, I'm in Cape Town. I am a writer. Um, I write for Stage, um, and I write for computer games. I work with Free Lives and such. I have basically been creating worlds all my life as well as a, as a writer um, and telling stories in that sense um, and putting them on page and the stage and so DMing um, is kind of a, a wonderful joy that I discovered probably quite recently uh, compared to most of you just a couple of years ago and yes I find that it's, it's really wonderful being able to create all the different characters. Thank you again very much for joining us and for agreeing to be on this panel. The first question that I've actually got for you is when you build an adventure where do you prefer to start or with what aspect of building your RPG? I generally start with the concept. I generally create an environment and I build mm -hmm. that environment up. That will be the environment that the players will be playing in. I generally want an interesting environment to begin with and one that will react to what the players choose to do and uh, one that will allow the players to react in turn to create an evolving narrative naturally. So it's always the core bubble that the players will be playing in that I want to tackle first. And then I go from there to kind of flesh it out and come up with the little details. So from my side, when I start with building a new world, I tend to always try and think of what, who my big bad evil guy is mm -hmm. first. How did the world influence him? Her, how did they grow up and then build out the world from there? You know, is he a big bad evil guy? Because his parents were killed or mm -hmm. something like that and then build my world around that. And then from there, work on my themes and how they will influence my world. And then finally go into the true world building of, oh, here's where this city is. And this is what its history and the smaller details of cities and cultures and things like that. I, I really like those. I think both of those answers are very similar to mine. But I think the thing that I first get into uh, is genre. What is the, the, the nature of the story that we're going to collaboratively be telling? Because that influences like every other choice from there. Right off the bat, are you going to do a horror campaign? That's going to be very, very different. And then you start figuring out from there, okay, if it's horror, what kind of villain it is and what kind of setting comes from there. I like to have the mood first. High adventure, cratchety comedy, whatever that's going to be, that kind of leads my thoughts uh, onto the rest of the world. Dementia DM says, when building a world, is there any big no-nos? Paradoxically... Uh, the big no-no for me is going in too much detail. For me, I find it important to 
leave out as much as I put in because a lot of what I build comes organically mm-hmm. and I tend to focus more on what the players are going to be encountering first and I then allow the questions that the players ask to direct me in what I build next. I do not build an entire world. I get ideas for it and the ideas will stew And as I see what the players do, how the players react to things and how the world reacts to the players, I will then build it up as the adventure goes along. I kind of go the opposite way to Daniel there. I don't think there's ever any such thing as too much law building in your world. I have books that I know my players will never know about. I can be writing something. I'm like, no one's going to ever ask about the sewage system of the city, but I'm going to have the law just in case they do. The one big no-no is always respect your players and their boundaries. And that's so important when you do a session zero. Know where players' limits are. If they don't want to go in a certain direction, make sure you don't go in that direction. I think that is the only real no-no when world building happens in my world. That's a very good point. Um, I I would just add that one needs to be conscious of cultural appropriation and stereotypes and that kind of thing. When creating the world, one of the best ways to do it is to look around our world and draw inspiration from different places, cultures, and times of history. That's a huge seam to, to mine from, to discover wonderful things that you can add that will make your own world richer. And the only no-no is to go surface level and, you know, take a stereotype as inspiration and hit that rather than hit the, the deeper stuff. Other cultures, great for, for good inspiration, but be respectful, do your research, and it'll actually pay off way, way more than a light gloss of Orientalism or whatever yeah. it's going to be. Because yeah. says... When he builds adventures, he likes to start with faction politics, so who the big players are in the region and what their goals and if there are conflicts between them. And then he also commented that for him, law is definitely more for the DM than it is for the players. I was going to say about John's comment about the stereotypes. So what I find a lot of fun with world building sometimes is to lean into a stereotype and then when your players go to like look at it, you pull the carpet out from under them and they go, Whoa, what the hell just happened? No, I thought we were having going to this really heavy stereotype and now you turn around going complete other direction and actually showing me something deeper. Yeah, it's interesting to be able to subvert that, those sometimes. The version is fun. Exactly. Okay, I've got another question from Chad from Dark Wolf, and he says, How does one maintain notes for all of the towns, characters, or stories? So he says his notes are just horrible scribbles. So he's thinking of maybe starting with a mind map to get things more under control. But how do you guys manage it? I love mind maps. Ooh, mind maps. Uh, they're like phase one. <laughs> just do just do mind maps all over the place. Love it. But then my phase two of the thing is to uh, have a flashcard for generally each location, each major NPC, just so I can sort through things quite easily and arrange that by session. So each session, I'll pull out the flashcards for the relevant geography that I think we're going to be approaching and a couple of spare ones in case uh, we bump into people. Um, and then also blank flashcards, because we are definitely going to make someone up as we go along. I tend to have a Word document or an exam pad with several pages of scribbled notes. Not nearly as professional, but it's gotten me through so far. I tend to go a little bit digital. My laptop Mm -hmm. is part of my DM screen. 
So I have everything on Excel spreadsheets. I have mind maps drawn on my computer. All of my DM notes for all of my main NPCs are on the are listed line by line by region. Like I have like a little lost interaction with this NPC box for what my players lost did with them, their history, a dark secret about them, their main motivation. So I have that all line by line on my spreadsheets. And that really, I find, keeps me on point of where everything's going. At one point, I did experiment with like using a, a wiki and oh, having wow. the, the players all contribute to that. It ends up being quite like asymmetrical and uh, it becomes, I think, a bit more of a chore for people. Like, I think most people end up being DMs because they are very into the world building and the scheming. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it might be more to do with the god complex that every DM has. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the, the puppet masters. Shigarath says that they tend to build a single city first and then expand outwards from there, introducing factions and the rest of the world bit by bit. So Gikoskopy says he uses a combination of fantasy grounds and Google Docs or Sheets. Ags the Crazy says that they have a notebook that they've divided into sections. So a section for cities and for NPCs, notes on the characters and their interactions with, with the NPCs, and then each section is a different thing that they plan for. I think my main city at the last count has 188 fully fleshed out NPCs. Oh, wow. <laughs> my custom world, I think, is somewhere sitting in the seven to 800 NPCs at the moment that I have fully fleshed out. I don't even bother, guys. My players are super murder hobos. They kill all my NPCs, including the incredibly <laughs> powerful ones by accident. I don't bother anymore with fleshing out my NPCs because they're going to die anyway. It leads to an interesting like question about world building because you know no matter how much care you put into it, it doesn't necessarily matter if the players don't care about that. It's just an important like part, as much as like you know like personality scenarios and stuff, is that emotional connection that you can make with an NPC. Role playing, you got to have a role for them in the world. You know how exactly. do they fit? into the factions, how they fit emotionally yeah. into like all the people around them. That does lead Very into true. the type of game you're running. How the players react to the world connects to the type of experience they're expecting to have in the adventure. Mm. Uh, a lot of adventures are just along for the ride type of adventures, in which case there's a lot less impetus for them to care about characters or react in a serious manner with characters. But if you look mm. at other uh, systems and adventure types where uh, there's a lot more pressure on the players and the characters to be mindful of what's around them, uh, then that changes a lot. They may not like the characters, but often you'll find the players and the, char- uh, the PCs will be a lot more careful in how they approach characters. I run a lot of horror, so I suppose that's something I deal with myself, and where the players never, compl- they very rarely just kill NPCs because a lot mm. of bad things will happen if that's the case. I tend to lean towards a very law-heavy kind of game. Mm. Like, if you don't explore the lore of the world to at least a certain degree, you're not going to understand why you're doing certain things. There's certain facts within the gods of this world that are influencing why you guys are going Mm. and having to fight monsters every other week Mm. because they're attacking the city. There's certain artifacts that you're going to need to find to get to the final big bad. My players don't even know who they're actually fighting yet. My players don't either, but like, I don't know either. <laughs> I know there's something out there, but I haven't, like that part of the mind map hasn't been filled in yet. Um, Dark Wolf says he got into DMing because of Colin Dum Dum Die, and he loves watching his players squirm when you reveal twists that they didn't expect. That's definitely up there in, in terms of a great thing to watch. 
that whole thing about twists, though, you know, like yeah. when you were talking about, uh, Kyle, about um, the bad guys, their schemes, and I think Daniel, you were like mentioning the factions, like a good yeah. twist is partly a well-planned, like, oh, they could never have predicted it. But the other side of like a good twist is that it's the natural evolution of bad guys' plans mm-hmm. coming to fruition. And if that plays out over a long enough time period, they will be shocked. They're like, what? That thing, the brewery, links up to this, links up to, and like, and all the details kind of fall into yeah. a new shape as they see it in like a broader pattern. And that's like about keeping yeah. the offstage world alive, you know, mm-hmm. with what your, what your bad guys are scheming. One of my world building things is what would happen if the adventurers weren't on the scene? Having a timeline of events, if the players do nothing or the players aren't present, actually helps a tremendous amount in knowing how an environment will react if the players aren't present, how things will progress. Mm -hmm. uh, It's actually quite fun. And it allows you to convey to the players and they hear news of an area they didn't visit. Me with my murder hobo players, everything that they do does impact the rest of the world that they are in. So absolutely everything. And they realize that the hard way, my games are... Very traumatic, to put it lightly. But it's also their behavior does influence that to a large degree. I think one of the, the most fun things you can do about keeping it, what John said about keeping an offstage world involved, have your villain mm-hmm. send someone a message spell. Have them send 25 words to someone as they're sleeping one night. Just be like, you know what? What you did last week really annoyed me. And then not really carry on from there. An interesting interaction of... Using spells that can just contact someone anytime. No, it is a cool dynamic. Like, not everything needs to be combat-based. So in the chat, Pixel Corp says they tend to keep their notes in Evernote and on Fantasy Grounds. Um, Shigarath is dumbfounded, Kyle, at how many NPCs you have. <laughs> they only have maybe a dozen per town. Carla commented that... She thought it was like 180. It was seven to 800, wasn't it? Seven to 800 in my world, 198 in my main town. You literally have like a sign at the outskirts that says, you know, uh, Ravenloft, <laughs> population 198. <laughs> you know what the worst thing is? Someone scrolls down. The first time I took them into this town, I was like, I have prepped for everything. My place will not find someone that I have not prepped for. It took them 20 minutes. I want to go find a bookseller. And I was like, you know what? suck i have not made a bookseller <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you prep your players will find that little yeah. hole where you haven't found that prep work yeah. done yet we've got some really cool questions coming out of chat so this one is controversial have any of you ever kicked out a player because they're too destructive i have but the disruption in this place was how they were acting with the other players rather than the story I'm quite happy for players to do whatever they want to do in terms of the world I've set. There will always be consequences for what they do, but I found the players enjoy seeing those consequences happen. The player I did kick out was someone who was playing for themselves rather than playing with the other players. And it was quite badly affecting the enjoyment of the rest of the party, so they had to go. That's a very good reason, a very good reason to kick someone out. I've never had to kick a player out, but I have had groups fall apart because of the group dynamic just not clicking. People are playing for their own objectives instead of trying to look why they're playing together as a party and building relationships mm-hmm. within their own party. 
No, knock on wood. You've no. just had amazing players. <laughs> uh, well, I also All play a lot time. of kind of West Marches style, where you know okay. I only have one that's just like a continuous party, um, and then the rest is kind of like I have a, a Telegram group with about twenty people, and then we play like a mm. bunch of one-offs and West March style kind of uh, world stuff. That is always so that fun. You don't need to worry so much about like continuing group dynamics uh, amongst mm. people. Those were really great responses and very different, which is why we got different panelists on. The next question is, how do you build combat encounters, specifically in D&D, which has encounter builder rules in the DMG, for example? I don't know that because I've never read a core book. (laughs) (laughs) Look, there's obviously the crunch and and the numbers and the balance of that. One of the things is that I try to make sure that uh, there are interesting objectives for the villains and the PCs. Because if it, if you're always doing like, okay, it's a knockdown fight, last man standing uh, wins, that gets old real quick. But there are a lot of like different formats for an encounter that you can try. Like King of the Hill, hold a position for a while, keep away a thing, keep one person alive, uh, make it through a gauntlet. Formats like that, where your encounters become uh, much more interesting and it means you can kind of manipulate the odds. So if someone has to survive, say, 10 rounds and that and then reinforcements come in, that's that means you can actually like have a really, really terrifying monster or so many more uh, minions come up against them than if they have to actually kill everyone. So, you know, different kinds of uh, encounters are uh, important to think about. Different objectives. Yeah. I think also something that a lot of new DMs miss, bad guy can run away. In fact, that is actually so much fun is when your bad guy escapes and comes back a little bit stronger, a little bit different. That can really extend the story and have it go very different. The DMG has a good rule of thumb on how to balance encounters. But also, mm-hmm. as you play with a certain group more, you kind of get the feel for how much they can handle. You get the vibe of are they very strategic and will always make the best move? Or are they going to do some really mm-hmm. silly things? And then you might want to tone down your difficulty because if they're going to always do something silly but sometimes thematically appropriate, maybe make the encounters a little bit easier because otherwise you're going to have a lot of character sheets you go through. I'm going to be the outlier here in that I really don't like the idea of balancing encounters, which is also a large reason why I don't run D&D very often. I prefer a natural environment, so... For me, combat isn't a portion of the adventure. It's something that can happen while players are playing. It's often something that the players choose to commit to, or it's something that the players can choose to avoid. So for me, it's creating a hostile environment and not worrying about balance and rather worrying more about if it makes sense within the narrative. Do you kind of like balance the encounter like on the fly? Like you've got your monsters and stuff and if you feel they're hitting a little too hard, you, you pull back a little bit or uh, do no, you no, no, no. Uh, let the dice... Me, the, the, when I create an environment that has creatures in it, mm-hmm. I focus more on what makes sense in the setting. So if it's in a factory that builds machines, there'll be a variety of machines. Uh, if it has a military wing where it builds military machines, there'll be military machines. But the importance is I will convey that information to the players and make it clear that they're entering an area where there are military machines which will be dangerous and Mm. risky to fight. And therefore, the players with that information will be able to make the choice of going, okay, we're going to avoid that place because it's scary, 
or we're going to go through that place and try to plan to avoid for, avoid fights. Uh, I prefer combat as something that players can choose to avoid if they uh, if they can. It's not not a necessity. It's something that can happen. Gikoskopi says he always makes sure to portray that. The guards are way more numerous, skilled, and equipped than the players in case the players feel that they want to go rogue. Actually, go the opposite <laughs> way with that. You can go and kill every guard in town as, as one of my players. The whole logic is, if the guards are better equipped than you, then why the hell would you want to be an adventurer? Why are you not a guard? <laughs> Maybe you didn't go to guard school. If you're already at like a level 10, you're probably one of the most elite fighters in the world. I prefer to have the consequences for, for things like guard slaughter and uh, murder hoboing be political and emotional. So they might, you know, if they decide to like slaughter something, uh, um, a guard, when they're looting the corpse, they'll find a pack of letters from home saying, um, you know, I'm really worried about you. It's so dangerous. Just come home to the farm. Danny misses you, you know. I it's important that, that he has a father, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and that can rein in... <laughs> Um, you know, really twisted emotional dagger in there. Like, yeah, it's got to be. You know, there's got to be a better way to 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 get by. Yeah, you know, to exactly. to pay for Grand's medicine. So Kuya Bray asks, is there a place to learn how to wing it when your players do something you didn't expect them to, or does it just come with experience? I think it mostly comes with experience. But one good thing to always have, always have an extra list of names. Go find like. 20 names that you like, and then when you have to throw in a random person, you just go to that list, you cross the name off, and you use that name. That is the essential thing for winging it, is to have that list. I would say it does come with experience, but there are a lot of things you can do to speed up the rate at which you can get comfortable with it. I think comfortable is an important word when it comes to improvisation. One of the systems I often suggest that GMs and players play is Blades in the Dark, because it is a system that is very much about improvisation, there's no prep involved. The GM will arrive, he'll, have, he'll provide the players with, hear the rumors that you've heard, the players will pick one, and then both the GM and the players will largely improvise their way through that story. So the GM does not have an, necessarily an environment built. It's the choices that the players make and the story events, uh, story choices that they take and how they choose to affect the story that will change the narrative completely. And it forces both the gym and the player to learn to improvise. So in terms of improvising, I think that is a fantastic system to try out. It is different and doesn't click with everyone. But in terms of learning to do that, that helped me a tremendous amount. Also watching helps. Um, mm. Go watch D&D streams. Yeah. Watch Dum Dum Die. Watch Critical Role. Oh, yes. Learn from the DMs who have been doing it a lot longer than you and understand why they're making their choices. The issue, though, with watching is that it's difficult to tell what is improvisation and what isn't. A lot of it is improvisation, but they have to be confident and they have to play it straight for the players. Uh, so as a viewer, it's uh, harder for you to pick up on what they're doing. I mean, often uh, you'll see them talking about it and you go, oh my God, they made all of that up on the fly? And But when you're watching it, it feels professional. It feels like that was planned. Well, I mean... You can totally tell when Carla's making it all up on the fly because yeah. she's giggling half the time. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time that's on the fly. It's all ad lib. Like, we actually don't know what we're doing. We like to say we're professional, but 
we have no clue what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I think, a difference between the RP uh, bits of improv and fitting that in the world. I don't know, the way the question was worded, it sounded a little bit almost like when people try to do use a spell in a way that it wasn't intended or an action like that or mm. you know, drop a chandelier on people. For that, for improvising that kind of thing and figuring out how to handle those, rule of cool is very important. Is it going to create a satisfying moment um, and be fun? Or is it going to be just, is it going to like ruin the, the, the tension? Does it feel like an exploit or does it feel like something that is clever? And that is very much, I think, experience and judging the emotions and the feelings that it's going to elicit from your players. Are they going to be happy that they got away with it or are half of them going to be bummed that the bard just kind of nerfed the encounter uh, by misusing uh, a spell. There's also, I think, I'm not sure where in the DMG it is, but on the Dungeon Master screen, there is rules for improvised damage. So both Shadesplitter and Paulin84 have said they have had to boot players who are either destructive to the world or destructive to the player dynamic or the group dynamic. And then there's also mention of online encounter planners, such as Cobalt Fight Club and Goblin List. I think there's also now one on D&D Beyond as well. And then, Daniel, with regards to your non-balancing, uh, Dark Wolf mentions retreat as an option, which Kyle also mentioned. Retreating is tricky. The type of system that you're playing, the type of game that you're playing will affect how players perceive themselves. And a lot of the issues you have in the more gung-ho systems is that players forget that they can retreat. The idea is that this is a fight that they should be able to win. And the more problematic perspective of role-playing is the expectation that you should win any fight that you encounter. And with that in mind, retreating feels like giving up or retreating feels like you failed in a way that is perceived very poorly for a lot of players. And, but that is a good point, is that players should always be able to retreat and players should not feel they are being punished for retreating or feeling that the retreating itself is the punishment. No, I can definitely see that. I think one of my groups, the only time they ever considered retreating was they were fighting a warlock and the, the cleric literally used a, a magic item to counter spell. So the warlock turned around and said, oh, here, you're going to have the next spell. And in w one turn, he went from full health to getting out on the ground. And they were like, oh, okay, we need to take this seriously. Either we're going to run away now or we need to kill this guy now. Yeah. Dementia DM says, do you guys sometimes look at existing RPG campaigns to create your world, especially when starting out? I do not. What I do do, and I did see that Kyle touched on this, is I pull from a lot of the media I consume. So books, movies, and series, and that mm. tends to help inspire me quite a lot. I very rarely pull from other role-playing campaigns that I'm aware of, at least. There's a lot of subconscious stuff that happens, but my main point of driving uh, inspiration is from the media I consume otherwise. I do a lot of the similar stuff there as well. You know, some of my characters are almost little homages to certain favorite characters from things I've watched. Like, for example, in my main city, the leader and receptionist of the, the Monster Hunting Guild are homages to Grog and Pike from the first season of Critical Role. And like the lord of that city is from a book I read. He's a bit of a, not exact copies, but they're like retooled. Drawing from like different media, that's what I often do as well. You know, like, here's a, here's a little story trope. Here's, um, you know, like an, an interesting situation. 
there's uh, what's that film? Um, Assault on Precinct 13. I was like, that would make a really dope situation. But one thing I was having trouble with figuring out that didn't translate well from like other media, from films, books, and and such, was making mysteries. How to make a mystery because. Mysteries are very different in an RPG setting where people are looking for clues all over the place. They might miss some things. You need to like stack things in a very different way. So I learned a lot looking at how other campaigns would handle their mysteries, how they would plant all those clues and stuff. So I wouldn't say that I drew from that, but I did look at how the techniques of how they solved certain problems that I was struggling with. Grinning Gargle Gaming says most of his encounters are pre-planned. The only exception is when a party is traveling through a dangerous area. And then he uses XGTE tables. I don't know what those are. If you guys know Xanathar. what those are, that's great. Xanathar <laughs> <laughs> is everything. everything, I'm guessing. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool, well done. Paulin84 also says that they pre-plan encounters because they generally have an idea of where the group is going inside their world. There is talk of maps using Roll20, utilizing tokens as well. Paulin also says that they think understanding the world and the NPCs makes it easier to improvise. So since you know how the NPCs will react... To something that the players do, you will know how the world will re- react to what your players do. And there's actually an ending point from that. All you really need for an NPC is their drive and motivation. Uh, so if you have an NPC, the only real notes that I've needed, at least, is to know mm-hmm. what they want and a basic idea of what their preconception of the world is. And from that point, I can uh, role-play them and have them react to the players accordingly in a way that feels natural. So I agree entirely. I would add one thing to it. I would mm-hmm. need those two and their D&D, their D&D stats if I'm playing in a D&D system. Because I tend to try and play, if you've got an intelligence score of 8 and if you've got an intelligence score of 16, we're going to react very differently. So I'm, I'm a little bit like uh, broader, I think, in those. When I pre-prepare a NBC, and if I think they're going to have a big role, then I look at it kind of on these kind of like four pillars, you know, like what's their role in the world? You know, are they a shopkeeper? Are they a merchant, a smuggler or whatever? What is their status, especially in comparison to, to the adventurers? Are they high, low? You know, do they have a lot of power? Like, what are they? What is their relationship to them? Do they have shared history with the adventurers? So often, I think, adventurers come in cold and they're like, you know, you see a goblin at the bar just like tending the bar and, and they go, okay, I walk up to the bartender. And, the, and you start an, inst- uh, an interaction from scratch. Like, you've never met this person before. But actually, it's lovely to just like go like, the goblin looks up and says, Oh, Craddock, so lovely to see you again. Oh, I, oh, we better not get partying like we did last time. That would be ridiculous. Oh, I've still got the tattoo. <laughs> you know, and, and immediately they have like a thing. And uh, that comes to the last, the, the last bit, which is attitude, mm. is that uh, your NPC should always have some kind of attitude towards uh, the adventurers, whether that's suspicious yeah. Uh, happy or, or or what and it's quite fun to sometimes even divide that up in the party you know they're like oh craddock oh you're still with that guy you know um, and immediately kind of uh, sparks a thing and especially if the players feel empowered to make up and share history and, and improvise a lot in building uh lore and history with characters then it's a lot of fun yeah it's also great to see a player build lore going forward. So I have one of my players who actually has a prank war going on with one of them and has blown something like 2,000 gold just buying supplies 
to mess with this person. And they have done everything. Itching pat on each other. He glued her to a wall. They dropped her with Mage Hand the one day. She covered him in strawberry jam and let a bear into his room. Like, they have gone all out. That's <laughs> like, some serious and- NPC involvement. <laughs> We're going to do one last question, and I'm going to extend it to all of you. Pixel Corpse originally asked Daniel, but I think it's a great question for all of you to answer. What is your main RPG system? Currently, my main RPG system is Mothership which is a sci-fi horror role-playing game. It's uh, OSR adjacent, and it is definitely a system that encourages rulings over rules, uh, which, based on what I've said so far, probably makes a lot of sense of why I've clicked with it. And I've really enjoyed it. Uh, It's created some great sessions. It's created some absolutely hilarious uh, moments, some of the best deaths I've ever seen. And I and both the players I've played with have had an absolutely amazing time with it. I'm just a 5e person. I just, I really love 5e. I like its flexibility. I like it that it's got like enough crunch to be crunchy <laughs> um, and to respond to, and enough flexibility like to respond to most situations. And you can pretty much build a lot of things. I do like to, um, in the homebrew, kind of like simplify a few things, especially rules around law and race. I feel that you can actually just be any kind of thing and just apply the rules for, for stats in your own way, rather than have this, ah, yes, the elves, they live for 2,000 years. They have plus two intelligence and plus to this. You know, the reason you're an adventurer is because you're exceptional. If you want to be a barbarian elf, you know, just be a barbarian elf, and we'll give you, we won't give you the pluses to intelligence, we'll give you the pluses to strength, if that makes sense with what you want to build. Yeah, so 5e. Me, 5e. I've been running it since it pretty much came out. I have library that is the bane of my existence in terms of how much it's cost me to put together because i pretty much have i think every 5e source book at the moment that i read and prep and use 5e tends to be my preferred system but i run it in a bit of a different way i use a tv for all of my maps so if some of the guys in chat have been to timeless board games and richard they'll have seen me there with carrying in my tv Plugging it, putting that flat as my map screen. Oh, <laughs> so, you put yeah, it flat I, and you actually move around tokens on top of the screen like that? On top of the screen, yeah. Oh, very cool. That's really cool. That's an awesome idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so many resources online for it. So I download, if I've got like an hour free on a Saturday, that's what I do. I go through the, the Reddit forums and I just download maps. My favorite system, just in case nobody knows, but if you've ever watched Dum Dum Die, you should know, is Unknown Armies. I love running in unknown armies. I love playing in unknown armies. And it's because I feel that when you do character creation, your skills are very specific. They're very character-based. So it's not just your basic stats or skills like athletics, acrobatics. You can have, for example, a gun skill called straight shooter. That's your actual skill. And it's more descriptive of what your character can actually do or the way that your character actually is their personality. So that's why I love Anonomies. Otherwise, Dread. Not because I like to play it, but because it's super easy to run. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to totally guess Dread for you Wednesday. (laughs) I've seen you play it many times now. So it's super easy to run. But yeah, so I want to say thank you 
to the three of you for coming on for the first panel. If people want to see more of you, if they want to follow you on your social media, share yourselves, please. I don't really have much stuff you can really follow. My Twitter handle is Karak, K-H-A-R-R-A-K. I have a Twitch channel, which is just me playing games, which is also Karak. And beyond that, not much. I am John Keevy on like all the social medias at Twitter is uh, John is at John Keevy. Instagram is at John Keevy. Twitch is uh, slash John Keevy. That I just do a weekly um, quiz with everyone wants to everyone wants to get quizzed. It's Wednesday, uh, Wednesday 7 p.m. Uh, we're launching a uh, YouTube channel soon with uh, interviews with uh, local writers, game designers and all kinds of stuff. Oh. That's going to be at Zarnia uh, on YouTube. Yeah, that's that's John Keevy. That's me. I am on Facebook. You can just find me as Carl Gary Gray on Facebook. I am part of the D&D South Africa group. I tend to be quite active on there. Um, otherwise, you can find me as one of the moderators on the Dum Dum Die Discord and Twitch. I am tend to be around on those. And yeah, that, that tends, those tend to be the best ways to get a hold of me. Otherwise, if you're looking for me in person, I am, when Corona is finished, I tend to run beginner games for timeless board games once a month. But keep an eye on their social media for when they start that back up because I will be found there. And I'm always happy to talk to players, giving advice, etc. at those events. I'm Wednesday LaFay and you can find me on Dum Dum Die social media. So everything at Dum Dum Die. Please follow us. No, just like us. Actually, you don't have to follow us. Just like Dum Dum Dum. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least watch us once. If you have the time or the inclination, if you're interested in D&D 5e at all, or in watching role-playing, because I know sometimes that's also a difficult thing. Like, I don't watch people role-play. I find it incredibly boring. <laughs> yeah. when other people do it i find it great yeah. Come. Yeah, exactly. like, you must come and watch us because it's cool or at least five minutes my daughter watched five minutes she said ah that was fun and then she did so that's good enough yeah so please follow us at dum dum die so yes yeah, so thank you very much for joining us mm-hmm.